0: Alright, so we are once again in Romans 9. This is going to be our sixth week, I believe, in Romans 9. So we've been there for a little while, which means that there's a lot to forget, right? So I want to go back and read through Romans 9 before we actually get into the latter part, starting in verse 30. Uh, Could I get somebody to read verses 1 through 13 for us? Did somebody claim that already? Mike did? Okay. And then when Mike's finished, will somebody else grab 14 through 18? Dusty says no. All right. Jerry says yes. <laughs> All right. And then 19 through 29. Who's got that? Got it. All right. 29. <laughs> All right. Go ahead, Mike.
1: Alrighty. I'm telling the truth in Christ not lying my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that my, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom belong with the adoption as son and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever, Amen but it is not as though the word of God has failed For they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants but through Isaiah uh, your descendants will be named that is it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as the sinners. This is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have son. And not only this, but there there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it.
2: What shall we say then? There is no justice but God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will so then, it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on who desires, and he hardens whom he desires.
3: One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists resist his will? But who are you, O oh man? O oh man, to talk back to God. Shall what his form say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have a right to make out the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. What if God, choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath, prepared for destruction? What if He, what if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, who be prepared in advance for glory, even us? whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my love, my loved one, who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously: Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like some. We would have become like. All right. So that's a
0: good reminder of what we all have a full grasp on now, right? Having gone through five lessons on Romans nine, we're experts on that portion of Scripture, right? And today we're going to be wrapping up Romans nine, starting in verse thirty. And I want us to go through and illustrate this together, kind of diagram it out on that sheet that I handed you. If you guys don't have a sheet, there's one back here um, on that last chair of that row. Joe, there's a sheet over here for you, if you'd like. All right, so um, starting off in verse 30, it says, what shall we say then, um, in in reference to all this that we just read, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. So we see here that we have this first group mentioned, Gentiles, and what do we read about Gentiles in that verse, in verse 30? It did not work their righteousness. Okay, so they're not pursuing it, right? And it's righteousness that they're pursuing. What does it say about righteousness in particular? Alright, so it's a righteousness of faith. I didn't draw my little circle big enough there. We see that in 930. <laughs> Alright, um, so Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they have attained righteousness. I think Brittany and Mandy are realizing they sat in a poor seat. That's okay, you can get up and move. we won't make fun of you. So Gentiles not pursuing? Yeah, so the Gentiles, it says in verse 30, that they were not pursuing this righteousness of faith. However, we're going to see that that's where they end up. Uh, verse 31... Uh, Says, but Israel. So, Israel is the other group that we have in view here. Up here we see Israel. And Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. So, down here we see that their goal is a law of righteousness. So, both are pursuing righteousness. This is referred to as a righteousness of faith. So the, the means that they get there is faith or, or humble faith. That is how these Gentiles are said to attain to this righteousness of faith. And the Israelites who are pursuing this law of righteousness, um, it says in 31 that they have not attained to this law of righteousness. So they're trying to get there, but it's not something that they have attained and you'll notice several times it uses words like pursue or attain or obtain, or they're pursuing. These are all words that um, are to, to spark an image of a race in, in our minds, They're related to something that um, you would read about in a race. And so Israel, who's pursuing this law of righteousness, trying to get to this uh, race-like finish line, they are unable to, to finish that race, or unable to get there. And why does it tell us that they are unable to get to this law of righteousness? In verse 32. Alright, so they weren't on this path of faith, but rather it says... Um, That they didn't seek by faith, but as it it were by works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. So rather than pursuing a righteousness by faith, they're pursuing this righteousness by works. And they did not attain to the law that allowed them to get to this righteousness of works. Um, We see this same kind of dichotomy between different righteousness, righteousness <laughs> um, in the following section. So we see this here 930 talks about a righteousness of faith. It was 931 that talked about a law of righteousness. And then we'll see in 10.3 uh, that we have a, a similar dichotomy there. Um, I'll go ahead and read 101 through 10.3. I guess I should read 33 too, so 33, 933 through 10.3 says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 10.1 Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So, in ten three, how does Paul describe the righteous, righteousness? Righteousness is there. Yes. What do we see in ten three?
2: Trying to create our own righteousness.
0: All right, so they're going after their own righteousness or going after the righteousness of God. So, again, there's a a distinction there. God's righteousness or a righteousness that we can attain ourselves, which, again, is on the basis of works and not on the basis of faith. And then picking up in verse four, um, reading through verse six, we'll see it once again. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. So again in 5 we see a a righteousness of the law. And then verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And that will go on to next week's passage. What's that?
3: What's
0: Uh, 10.3? 10.3 talks about either following God's righteousness or righteousness of our own. Yeah,
1: what?
0: Romans. Oh, Romans. Yes. This is a Romans class. We're in Romans 9 through 10. And so in 10.6, we see a righteousness of faith once again. So two different... Destinations, two different paths to get there, faith and works. Um, and uh, again, two different ends, because those who are pursuing a righteousness of law, their own righteousness, um, a righteousness that comes from law, by works, they do not attain to this righteousness. And in this section, Paul identifies the Israelites as those who are seeking after that type of righteousness. Not that every Israelite is doing that, but in large part, um, that is what the Jewish people are doing. Whereas the Gentiles, again, in large part, not exclusively, are pursuing God's righteousness, a righteousness that is by faith. Um, Thoughts or questions on that before we move on? All right, let's go ahead.
2: Well, the same thing, obviously religious people, because a lot of religious people compare themselves to Israel, but they say they've replaced Israel in the the, 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 the following laws, their own laws, or God's laws, in order to produce our own righteousness.
0: All right. It, It fails, indeed, it fails to recognize the absolute holiness of God and the standard that he set for us and the depravity and sinfulness of man, those two are incompatible and without uh, a righteousness that's by faith on the rock of Christ, then we will not bridge that gap. So um, let's go through and let's talk about uh, a righteousness that comes by faith, salvation that comes by faith. What verses can we go to that talk about uh, salvation by faith alone. You guys think of any verses? I sure hope we can. Ephesians two. Ephesians two. What is Ephesians two eight? Anybody have that one memorized? For by
2: faith.
0: For by grace you. All right, good. So we got even over here, um, Ephesians 2:9. So over here, um, talk about how we are not saved by works, right? No works. Works are bad. Ephesians 2:9. Not by works, so that nobody should boast. And over here talks about how faith is good, right? Faith in Christ. The object of our faith is very important. That is the only way of <laughs> salvation. What about in John? What verses do we know from John? John is all about belief and faith, right? That's the whole purpose of him writing that book. What verses do you guys know from John that talk about being saved by faith?
2: 316.
0: All right. Yeah. I wanted to do, before that, 112. You guys know what John 112 says? But as many as believed him, received him, even to those who believed on his name. They've been given the right to become children of God. What's
3: that say,
0: John? John one, twelve, yep. Alright, and then we got three, sixteen, I'm gonna go fifteen through sixteen, or fifteen through eighteen. Several times in just that short span of verses it talks about being saved by faith. If we get somebody to open up to John three and read those verses for us while we continue to think of other verses in John. You guys got other verses in John that talk about being saved by faith? Uh, Like John 3.36, I
3: think. 3.36? Yeah.
0: All right. John 3.36 is um, at the end of the chapter. And do you know that one, Joseph?
1: Okay. He who Alright, that was a good one. And that one
0: equates belief with obeying, doesn't it? Alright, who's got John three fifteen through 18 for us? 15 through 18? Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that
4: he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God.
0: Amen. All right. And while she was reading, I threw up a a couple other verses up there. Uh, 524 Mm -hmm. says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who... He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Um, 640, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And then 2031, where John gives his thesis for for writing that whole book, he says, but these, uh, these miracles, that is, have been written, so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in him. So... John, again, that's his whole purpose for writing. If you want to go to a place that talks about being saved by faith, John is definitely the place to go. Other thoughts about places to go for verses on being saved by faith? Yes? What about James 2? James 2. What does James 2 say about being saved by faith?
4: Um, well, 17 sums it up kind of. It says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have words of
0: All right, so that's talking about having faith and how that faith, that kind of faith, that saving faith will produce works, right? So that's kind of pairing the two and talking about how works are going to be a natural result of the faith that we have. And if somebody says that they have faith, but they don't have works, that's not a, a saving faith, right? All right, a couple other ones I was thinking of. Acts 16.31. You guys know that one? That's a pretty popular verse. Not quite? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. All right. Really succinct, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Uh, And, of course, going to James 2 and qualifying what that belief means is always a good thing because a lot of people will take that verse and they'll say, oh, it's just pray this prayer after me, and that's totally not what we're advocating, but belief or faith in uh, Christ is the only way to achieve righteousness. A righteousness that comes by faith. Alright, what about in Romans? We are in a Romans class, right? So, what other verses do we know from Romans that talk about being saved by faith?
2: Alright, you got those for us? But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction for all that sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Okay. God publicly
0: displayed, etc., etc. etc., etc. All right. Um, and while you're reading those, I again threw up a couple others. Romans one16 uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, right? Who has faith. For the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. And then Romans 4 3. Um, says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A quote from Genesis 15, 6. So, a plethora of verses, and we just touched a few that talk about how we are saved by faith. Now, jumping back to the other side where we put Ephesians 2, 9. What other verses can we put up there that talk about how we are not saved by works? Because these are verses that we need to know living in Utah. Verses that are very pertinent to our personal evangelism and um, just to our, our daily living. What verses do we know that talk about how we are not saved by works? Alright, let's throw up a few. What was that?
4: There's some in, in Colossians.
0: Yes. I know there's one in Colossians. Yeah, at the end of Colossians 2, Possibly is what you're thinking about how um, all of our certificates of debt have been nailed to the cross, right. and so when that talks about how obviously we can't do anything with those, right? Those certificates of debt that are against us. Uh, Romans 3:20, right before the one that Jerry read. Um, that's a, a good one. It says because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. Um, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. He manifested that righteousness, again, apart from the law. So pursuing the law is not the way to achieve righteousness. That's what Israel was trying to do. But it was apart from the law that righteousness can be attained or achieved. Um, Romans 8.3. Will somebody look that one up for us? Romans 8.3 Romans 11.6 we'll throw that up there
2: so what the law could not do is that the from the flesh God did
0: amen so the law couldn't do it but God did it alright and then put up a, a couple in Galatians because Galatians is great for that um, Galatians 2.16 and 2.21 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, that's pretty clear, right? Not justified or made righteous by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So three times in that one verse he says, you're not going to be justified by the works of the law, not by... The law of righteousness, not by your own righteousness. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. or in vain." right? So, once again, no lack of verses that talk about how we are not saved through the law. We are saved through faith and faith alone. And Jerry, kind of to the point that you were talking about before, um, one of our, our blanks on our handout here says that sola fide, or this doctrine that we are saved by faith alone it totally invalidates all of our personal effort now why is that a good thing why is that a bad thing why did i put these smiley frowny face emojis next to that statement that sola fide completely invalidates our personal effort (coughs) what do you think why is that a good thing
1: about us it's not about our works it's about his works I think um, 2 Timothy 1 9 says who has saved us They called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose
0: alright will add that up there 2 Timothy 1 9 so it's not about us and that's a good thing right because we're not good if it were about us and our own righteousness we would be in trouble um And I don't only speak for myself, I speak for all of you guys, gladly and and freely. Uh, We would all be in trouble if it were up to us. Now, why is that a a bad thing? Why is that a a sad thing that uh, sola fide invalidates all of our own personal effort? Because without God's efforts uh, in
2: us personally, need to do it even all right we'll
1: never just not striving
3: with the kids and yeah idea so yeah I do and say some people say fine then don't you try and say yeah oh, I mean you try and be good yep go I <laughs> I'm just going
0: to embrace that sinfulness right I'm going to embrace the flesh and indulge in it um and for somebody like the, the Israelite or the Jew who spends his whole life trying to achieve righteousness by the law, trying to attain his own righteousness, as Romans 10 3 says, that's crushing and defeating. And if you're willing to be crushed and accept the the crushingness of that and, and humble yourself, then that's a good thing. But if not, um, that's that's bad news, right? And and the more that you live in A self-righteous cultic like environment the more difficult that's going to be if you're putting your faith in your own righteousness and all these things that you spent your life trying to attain trying to build up and trying to do that's a a pretty defeating reality that salvation by faith alone invalidates all of your personal effort everything you spent your life trying to do trying to build trying to become it's nothing and we have to get to that realization that understanding before we can walk this road of faith to a true righteousness, a righteousness that is of God. And being fallen sinful creatures, we are often too proud to invalidate everything that we spent our life living for. That you know, would be a, a difficult thing to do. And just bridging that gap a little bit, we live in a culture just like that, that puts a lot of stock and uh, a lot of hope in their own righteousness, in their own deeds. And outwardly, they are great people, right? But that's just all the more that they have baggage that they have to get rid of in order to embrace a a true righteousness that is of faith. All right, so this whole passage here, 30 through uh, 32, talks about being saved by faith as opposed to being saved by works. However, this section here in no way invalidates the rest of Romans 9 that came before, the rest that we read at the beginning of this class, um, it doesn't nullify the, the beginning of Romans 9. Uh, will somebody read Romans 9.19 just to remind us of kind of a summary of what that's talking about? 9.19.
4: Mm-hmm. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For he can resist his will.
0: All right, so nobody can resist the will of God. Uh, and indeed, we have no desire to in and of ourselves because when we are in that sinfulness, when we are embracing the, the old man of, of sin, we, we like it. We enjoy our sin. We like to stay there. And so we have no desire to embrace righteousness or embrace God apart from God. We cannot resist his will. So let me erase that fella right there. So we have to make another arrow down here that talks about God's will um, and goes through Romans 9, we'll look at 6 and then 14 through 24 and see how that relates to uh, what God is trying to achieve, His purpose in all of this. So back in Romans 9, 6, remember one of the, the key verses that Paul is trying to communicate in this he says but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect or in the new American standard it is not as if the word of God has failed so what God is trying to work towards what his end goal is is his faithfulness right he wants um, everybody to, to realize it that, that he is faithful he is not a man that he should lie or a certain man that he should group in. But God is faithful. We see that in 9 six. 9 fourteen says, what shall we say then? Well before we even get there, we see these examples of God's faithfulness, right? In Abraham, in Isaac, in Jacob, in these people that God has called and elected unto himself for salvation. Uh, once again by faith. To the end goal of, of righteousness that comes by faith. And then 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. So God is not unrighteous again, speaking to his faithfulness. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So we see that one of the means of him attaining his own righteousness is By showing mercy. Was that verse 15 I just read? Maybe it was 16. Uh, Either way, he's talking about showing mercy on those whom he desires, showing compassion upon whom he desires. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So there's another reason for his, his purpose, to show his power, that it would be declared throughout all the earth. Is that 18? I don't know. Somewhere 17. in. 17. Thank you. So to put on display his own power. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and... He hardens whom he wills. So for the the means to get to his desired goal of putting on display his faithfulness and his power, we see not only that he shows mercy and compassion upon whom he wills, but also that he hardens whom he wills. So a couple of different means to get there. He hardens, which is um, just a different way that he shows his justice. It is just for God to allow somebody to stay in that. Sinful state. He hardens whom he wills, he shows mercy upon whom he wills. Uh, 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endures with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so there in verse 23, we see that uh, his glory is his end desire that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So we can add that up to our list, say God is seeking his own glory. Verse 23, he's seeking his own faithfulness to put on display his power and to put on display his glory. He's doing it by uh, showing mercy on. those who have faith in him and by showing uh, his justice or hardening others who are going to be a display of his power. They are prepared for destruction from beforehand. And we'll see this as we get farther down into our passage at the end of chapter nine. So let's turn back to maybe you don't have to turn. I have to turn. Um, 9.32. 9.32. 9.32. Um, Talking about these two different groups. Gentiles pursuing righteousness by faith. Israel pursuing a law of righteousness. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were by the works of the law. Again talking about Israel. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written. Behold I lay in Zion a stumbling stone. And rock of offense. And whoever believes on him. Will not be put to shame. So. On my little illustration, I drew a little stumbling stone, a little rock right here. It's talking about Jesus, right? And it's put right in the, the path of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, they are told to look forward for this Messiah, to look to this Messiah who's going to be the answer for the, the law. The law, as we read in Romans 3, was for those who are under the law to <coughs> silence every mouth to hold the whole world accountable so that we might become conscience, conscious of our sin and realize that we're not able to do that. And Jesus was the one who was the fulfillment of that law. And he acted as a stumbling stone for Israel. They tripped over this Christ who was to be the the answer for how to attain righteousness. And the same Christ acted almost as a, a bridge for those who wanted to, to put their faith in in Christ, right? To actually attain this righteousness. He is the way that they were able to attain that righteousness. Now, here in 33, in in the NASB, I don't have the NASB right now, but in NASB, it should be in all capitals, right? Sure. ESV, it's um, bracketed out and looks different. That is because it's a quote. The Holy Spirit had brought this... Old Testament text to Paul's mind. Look in your um, your side notes. What are those called? Um, your footnotes or whatever. And let's figure out where does that text come from. What is Paul quoting there in nine thirty three?
4: Isaiah
0: twenty eight. Isaiah twenty eight. All right. Um, will you turn to Isaiah and read that for us? And then, is there another reference there? Eight fourteen. 8.14, all right. Uh, Logan, will you turn to Isaiah 8 read for us 8, 14 and 15 uh, after Jen's done reading from Isaiah 28. We're going to do a little Bible study on this verse here in
4: 33. Isaiah 28.16. Yep. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid... That who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. All right,
0: good. And I should have actually directed all of us to turn to Isaiah. Let's turn with Logan to Isaiah 8, if you're not already there, and see where Paul's quoted from Isaiah 8. We'll actually do 13 through 15, if you got that for us. Go ahead, Logan.
4: 13 to 15. But the Lord of hosts him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be
0: snared and taken. All right. So. In that passage, who is speaking in Isaiah 8 13 through 15? The
4: Lord.
0: The Lord, right? Again, all caps. So Yahweh is speaking. And who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? Do we understand that to be? What's that? He is God, right? And Israel would understand this is the one true God of Israel, the one true God of the world uh, who has made this everlasting covenant with us. He is um, the self-existent one, the one who is God alone. And going back into Romans 9, when it says, as, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who is that speaking of? That's speaking of Jesus, right? So Paul is quoting this Old Testament text that's talking about the one true God, Yahweh, and he's applying it here to Jesus. So that's pretty cool, right? So Paul's pretty clearly saying that this Jesus is God and God alone. Um, Going back into Romans and looking once again at your cross-references, where else in the New Testament do we see this same verse quoted? 1 Peter 2. All right, let's continue on our little journey. Let's turn to 1 Peter 2 and see what Peter has to say about this rock of stumbling, um, this stone of offense. So 1 Peter 2, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 8, if I can find it. Oh, Jeremy left, and... We're peeking, that's alright. Alright, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them. Um, you're I am in second Peter, thank you. I have returned, by what we were We were peeking a little bit. Oh, okay. while well, you're gone. Alright. Um, all right. First Peter two. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed So here it talks about them being appointed or destined or assigned here to stumble over this rock. Which sounds an awful lot like Romans 9, doesn't it? What we're reading in Romans 9. That was 1 Peter, not 2 Peter, but 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. And... uh, I think just in our own humanity, sometimes we can have a a difficulty with this, looking at the first part of Romans and seeing how it is God who decides who he's gonna harden, whom he's gonna have mercy upon for his glory, for his power, for his own faithfulness. While at the latter part of Romans, we see that it seems to be talking about how we either have faith, and we have all these other verses that we documented about how we need to have faith in Christ. These other verses talking about how we need to attain this righteousness, not by the law, not by works, but it is by us putting our faith in Christ. And so uh, people get stumbled up, just like these Jews stumbling over Jesus, over this doctrine of um, God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. And it can be really easy to fall to one side or the other and to overemphasize God's sovereignty and say man is completely out of it we have no responsibility whatsoever. Or to the other side, say, oh, it's all about man and what man does, and God has no part in it. He's just given us complete freedom to make up our own minds, whereas we see both fairly clearly in Romans 9. And we have to try to understand how these two work together. And so on your notes, I wrote down um, that this all really deals with the, the doctrine of concurrence which is a big word, and it has doctrine placed in front of it, but that's not a clue that you should fall asleep. Um, the doctrine of concurrence is really how we try to understand that dichotomy of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, and not just in view of salvation, but really in view of how everything works, how God can be doing one thing for one purpose, and man can be doing another thing for a completely different purpose. Purpose. Uh, I have a, a fairly simple definition here from Ligonier. They say that the doctrine of concurrence is when two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent. I'll read it one more time. It says that the doctrine of concurrence is when two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent. And I want to look up a few different examples of this. Um, I'm going to need a few volunteers. Can I look, get somebody to look up Judges 14, 1 through 4? Who can got get that? Got Joseph? Oh. Um, all right. Uh, Genesis 50:20. Who's got that one? All right. And will you turn there? Because I'm going to have you turn back a little bit too. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. All right, Fred. (laughs) And then Acts 4, 27 and 28. Who's got that? Mm -hmm. Joseph, all right. And before we go there, I'm just going to kind of summarize Job chapter 1, because this is really a, a great example of that. You guys can just think back to what was going on in Job and how Satan approached God. He was wandering on the earth, and God said, Hey, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan responded by saying, well, he only worships you because you've been so good to him, right? And then uh, as these horrible events begin to unfold in his life, uh, he loses, you'll remember his sons and his daughters and um, all of his uh, camels and oxen. And in Job 115, it talks about how the Sabaeans came and they plundered his oxen. And in Job 1.17, it talks about how the Chaldeans came and they plundered his camels. And in this event, God has Job's suffering in mind for his own glory, same as we see here in Romans 9, for his glory to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his faithfulness. Whereas Satan has in mind to destroy the faithfulness of God and say that, well, Job is only faithful to you because you take care of him. Whereas the the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, all they want is some oxen and some camels, right? All of these different parties have in mind different ends, different outcomes, but uh, the means for all of them is the suffering of Job. We see this same truth in these different passages that I've given you. In Judges 4, 1 through 4. Who's got that? Logan, do you have that one? Yeah, hold on. I went to 14.
4: Judges 4, 1. Oh.
0: Yeah, it is 14. My bad. Judges 14, <laughs> 1 through 4. Go back where you were.
4: I got here. Judges 14, 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take away from the circumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel.
0: All right. So that's kind of interesting because... Uh, Samson has his eye on this Philistine woman who was off limits per the law but it was the desire of God that he would take this Philistine woman because he wanted to come up against the Philistines Um, Jerry you have Genesis 50
2: 20 yes sir but Joseph said to them do not be afraid for am I in God's place for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about his present result to preserve many people alive. All right. And
0: that verse is often misquoted as saying that God used it for good, but it says that God meant or intended uh, Joseph's being taken away for good. And, Jerry, will you go back to 45? We see a, a similar encounter here in verse Verses five through eight of chapter forty-five, we see three different times that God had sent Joseph to Egypt. Forty-five,
2: five through eight. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here, sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. All right. Are we starting to
0: see this doctrine of concurrence, how God is doing one thing, and yet somebody else is doing something uh, possibly for a, a different intention, but to the same end, we have two parties working to the same end with different intentions. Uh, Second Corinthians twelve seven. You got that one, Britt? It's talking about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Second Corinthians twelve seven.
2: <laughs> Just seven. Yeah. Unless I should be
4: exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to be a messenger of Satan to to lest I be exalted
0: above measure. Alright, so it's clearly identified there as a messenger from Satan that was sent to Paul. That's why he has his thorn in the flesh. But before that, it talked about how it was given to him to keep him from exalting himself after having seen this vision of heaven. Which clearly wouldn't be a purpose that Satan would have in mind, but a purpose that God would have in mind. To humble him, to keep him from exalting himself. There, once again, you have both God and Satan working this thorn in the flesh in Paul with different intentions, but to the same end. And then Acts four twenty-seven through 28, the ultimate example of the crucifixion of
4: Christ. Go ahead, Joseph. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Alright, so
0: there we have four different groups of people. We have Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and Israel, and they're all working to crucify Christ. But it says that this was done at the hand of God by what he had predestined to occur. So five different parties that are working at the same end the crucifixion of Christ for different reasons. Um, And ultimately, we see that, or we should understand that God is the primary cause behind all of this. That God alone possesses ultimate primary causality. That he is the first and primary mover. That we can't do anything on our own apart from him. And I have a, a lengthy quote here that I want to read from you from... Uh, Ligonier they put out a few years back it says the law of causality is one of those axioms that is indisputable Every effect must have a cause for effect by definition is something that is caused Thus for anything to exist an uncaused something or someone must exist This uncaused cause as it were must have the power of being in itself and must be the first primary cause of everything else. It must depend on nothing else. It must not be an effect. For if it is an effect of something else, it cannot be the very first cause that brought everything into existence. Nothing created qualifies as this first primary cause. Only God, the eternal creator, can be the reason why there is something rather than nothing. So... We can't do anything on our own, anything apart from God. God is the first primary mover. And then after that, we have uh, a a series of choices and and freedom. We make those choices, but they are in line with God's will. So going back to this idea of uh, concurrence, more than one party working for the same end with different intentions, but God is the primary cause behind it all. A few verses to to throw out at you to uh, support this idea of God alone being the primary cause. 1 Corinthians 12.6 says that there are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Philippians 2.13 says that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, It is in him that we live and move and, and have our being. Forgot that reference. What's that reference? Acts something. 17. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 says that we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. So God does everything primarily, but yet we are both working um, at the same time. All right. Back in Romans. Real quick, we'll wrap up. We see in Romans 10, 1 and 2, once again, that Israel is lost. As a whole, Israel is um, in need of salvation. When Paul says that it's his desire and prayer that God for Israel is that they may be saved, and realizes they have a zeal for God, but it's not a zeal according to knowledge. We saw the same thing back in 9, 3, when Paul says, I would wish myself accursed for my kinsmen, for my, my brethren. Sake, if that were possible verse 3 says for they being ignorant of God's righteousness that is a righteousness of faith um, and seeking to establish their own righteousness this righteousness from the law um, (coughs) have not submitted to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Matthew 5.17, I think, says that Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. There we see his active obedience, that he did everything that he was supposed to do, everything the law required. 2 Corinthians 5.41 says that he became sin for us um, and gave us his righteousness. That's his passive righteousness. And here we see that. He has put an end to the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. So this race that people are running to try to achieve this self-righteousness by the law, Jesus has put an end to that race. He says that he is the end of this righteousness and uh, he is the only way to have righteousness, to have true salvation that is from faith. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts or questions on all that? Kind of... Confusing stuff. Before we wrap up, what's
4: up? It was kind of making me think about you know the times that like Assyria and Babylon came against Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, when you read the passages, it kind of sounds like God really moved them to be, to you know to come against Israel. It's yeah. like God sovereignly placed that.
0: in the hand of the king or the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and He moves it wherever He wills. And he does all that for a, a purpose, right? Yeah,
2: I yeah, like to, you know, to, the, to those kings, they probably think that they have this, you know, on their own to go against Israel, but, you know. Yeah. God, they,
0: and in a sense, yeah. they do. But God is the, the primary cause, the primary mover, isn't he? All right, well, let's pray. God, we thank you once again for your word. Uh, pray that you give us a, a better understanding of these things. Give us a higher view of who you are, that we would glorify you and exalt you, that your power would be displayed, that we would understand you to be faithful, that it is not as though the faithfulness of God has failed. God, help us to just be in awe of you today, that you would be exalted in our hearts in this building, that we would be uh, instruments in your hand, we would be submissive to you, being willing to be used of you in whatever way that you would see fit. Praise you, these in your name, amen.